We're going to jump right in. New series called Fuel. Ecclesiastes, right? It's what we're going to be talking about over the next 8, 10, 12, whatever weeks. Um, And uh, it is a, a type of literature in the Bible that I love, uh, wisdom literature, book of Proverbs, um, the Psalms are part of wisdom literature as well, Song of Solomon, very interesting um, literature. Um, And these books are, I'll I'll kind of push the book of Psalms out for a second, these wisdom literature books like Ecclesiastes, uh, Proverbs, um, Song of Solomon, these books are very different, right? They are not primarily written from, let's say, a theological point of view. They're not written about God, to tell you about God. They're certainly not written to talk about doctrine. They're really not even written so much to talk about spirituality. These are books inspired by God to talk about life down here. Principles, um, practices, behaviors, ideas that can help you be successful down here. And so these books are popular. Even if you're not a believer, um, you will resonate, or these messages, I think, will resonate with you. Um, No book, as a a philosopher, some of you know, I I went off to to grad school and got a PhD in philosophy from OU. And as a philosopher, um, no book, I think, connects with me more than the book of Ecclesiastes. This is a philosopher, uh, a philosopher's book right here, um, written by... uh, or inspired at least by, perhaps written by King Solomon, and he was a philosopher king who delved into the deep questions of life, and he will be our tour guide over the next few weeks as he takes us through um, essentially a, a tour of all of the things that people turn to for inspiration, for motivation, for meaning, for significance, and I mean everything. He is going to take us on a tour of every place people look to for fuel, for what will move their life forward. That's what it's about. This, this is a book about the meaning of life. Now, I, I told somebody this morning, I mean, this is a book that perhaps should have a bit of a warning. If, if you are struggling with depression, this may not be the book for you. It's 12 chapters long, and for 11.5 chapters, um, it's not real cheery. It's a lot of fun, but it's not really very cheerful at all. Now, two ideas as we come in this morning that, that you need to have at the forefront of your mind, and these two ideas are going with us all the way through this journey. These are two ideas that Solomon is going to repeat over and over and over again. The first idea is the idea under the sun. He's going to use this phrase, under the sun, 35 times in these 12 chapters. For Solomon, that means, under the sun means life here. Not thinking about God. Okay, I know this is an interesting Bible book, isn't it? Because when he says under the sun, not thinking about heaven, not thinking about up there, not thinking about the great bye-bye, not thinking about eternal life, thinking about the day-to-day affairs of people under the sun. That is what he is going to consider in his study of fuel, of what fuels us. Every place that people turn to for meaning besides God. 
That's what he's going to be talking about. So when he says, under the sun, this is his shorthand for a life lived without God. And he's going to talk about religion. Religion doesn't necessarily involve God all of the time. So he is going to talk about uh, this tour of places people go to for meaning in life. So get this straight. When we read under the sun in the book of Ecclesiastes, we know that Solomon is inviting us to to suspend or at least push to the side temporarily our belief in God and to think of a life lived without God, without the spiritual world. Um, It's a thought experiment, and this is the way he's going to test the different places that people go to for meaning that don't involve God. I know it sounds pretty weird coming out of the Bible, but this is the book of Ecclesiastes. So the the under-the-sun perspective is that first kind of essential idea that we've got to get down as we approach this book. The second idea is, is it comes from this Hebrew word, hebel, this Hebrew word, hebel. Hebel, it's used 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. In the entire rest of the Bible, this word, hebel, is used like 35 times. So it is, it is much more used in the book of Ecclesiastes than any other place in the Bible. What does the word hebel mean? It means meaningless. If you have the King James Version, vanity. It means futility. It means pointlessness. So get the idea? If you're kind of down, if you're kind of feeling bad about things, he's going to hit you over and over 38 times with the meaninglessness, the futility of life down here under the sun. He says, launching right off, hitting us in the jaw with a dose of reality. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 2, he says... Everything is meaningless, completely meaningless. Verse 14, he says, I observed everything going on under the sun, and really, it's all meaningless. It's like chasing the wind. So 38 times, Hebel, 38 times, meaningless, meaningless, pointless, futile, um, low-grade sense that everybody has had at one point or another, this low-grade sense that this really isn't adding up to anything. I'm just running around in circles. I'm just running on the treadmill. No matter how hard I run, how fast I run, I seem to end up in the exact same place. Two steps forward, two steps back. He will call this this sense. This is bell. This is futility. It's like the guy at the airline counter who showed up with three different bags at the counter and was talking to the agent, and he said, look, here's the deal. I want to send this bag to L.A., which is my final destination today. I want to send this bag to Newark, and I want to send this third bag to Heathrow. The airline rep said, sorry, sir, we can't do that. He said, oh, yes, you can. That's exactly what you did last week when I traveled with you. Ah, is there any place that seems more irritating, annoying, futile than the airport? From the counter to the paying for your stinking bags to going through TSA and being generally hassled for several hours as you travel irritating, exasperating these cycles that occur over and over and over again. So futility, 
That is a word that represents um, the book of Ecclesiastes. All of the places that we look to for meaning, that we look to for fuel, all of them under the sun without thinking about over the sun, without thinking about a God perspective, these fuels that we choose to live by, Solomon will say, they add up to meaninglessness. Now, for a quick introduction to the book of Ecclesiastes, I don't know that I could put it any better than the folks at Blue Skies Studios did a few years back. So watch this clip, and then we'll get back to, um, to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you guys have seen those movies, that they put this little clip of Scrat is his name before each clip, and he is on this obsessive, compulsive pursuit of acorns, right? And he never gets what he chases. No matter how hard he works, no matter what he does, he never succeeds. And to varying degrees of, of, of doses of this, I mean, we fit in the same bill. And so this is what, this is what Solomon's going to do in chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes. He's going to talk about this futile pursuit, whatever it may be for you, and how it ends up under the sun without considering God. So let's talk about work. That's what Solomon talks about first. Work, career, job. Over the years, you will clock in, clock out, clock in, clock out, throw in a couple of weekends here and there, throw in some vacations here and there, there, throw in a little retirement, which will be relatively short compared to the amount of work that you have done, then you will die. <laughs> Verses 3 and 4. What do people get for all their hard work, for all their chasing after an acorn. 
What do they get for all their hard work under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but earth never changes. Is there something about your work that exacerbates your sense of futility? As an accountant, as a lawyer, as a doctor, as a plumber, is there something built into your work that just reminds you of how futile everything is? This past week um, was a lot like every other week for me, right? Barbara and I printed out letters to send to our young couples at Preston Crest who have welcomed into the world a new child. And so it's great. You know, we have that happy letter. We celebrate this birth with you. And so I signed those this past week. The next day, Barbara has for me the letters we're signing to those who suffered a loss. I'm sorry about the loss of, of your mother or your sister or your brother or your husband. Um, we signed, so every week we sign. This is part of my job here. Um, I, I celebrate the births and I mourn the losses. And I don't know what they would add up to if you put them in two columns, but we know statistically, right? I mean, there is one statistical certainty. Um, for every one person who is born, one person will die. And so there's this futility, this reminder in my week um, under the sun of this, this futility. Um, what about vacuuming the house? I know some of you, uh, you know, there, we have some men here that enjoy vacuuming the house. Hal McGee is one of those. Vacuuming the house. Have you ever been vacuuming the carpet and you see, I see one right here, a, a piece of string on the carpet, right? And so that piece of string becomes your acorn. You run over that thing three or four times. The string doesn't move. What is it with that string? Finally, you pick up the string, you examine the string, you place it back on the carpet, and you run over it again. It still doesn't move. What is it about your week, about the, the jobs that you do that reminds you of futility? Last week, um, I am not a handy person. My wife did not marry a handyman, that's for sure. But we have these stones outside our house, these natural stones, fairly heavy, that are required to, to kind of hang on this wall. I mean, have to defy gravity a little bit. So they have to be, you know, some mortar, some cement, whatever, kind of holds those things up. Well, they fall off. Um, not, not great engineering by the person that put those up to start with. They tend to fall off. Well, twice I have had professionals come out and put the stones back up. Once my dad came from Missouri and he said, ah, I think I know the product we need to use that will help them stay up there. They keep falling off. So this week for the first time, Barbara, I decided that I, I mean, why pay money? Because they're going to fall off anyway. So I went to, to Home Depot, I bought some stuff, and I've slapped them up there. And let me tell you, for the past three days now, they have stayed put. You want to know how I feel about those stones staying up there for the past three days? Um, I feel like this. Yes, yes, I've achieved something. Now, here's the futility. I know they're going to come off. 
Probably when the weather starts to get cold and things kind of shift and expand and shrink and they're going to drop off. Um, But there you go. Better than spending a few hundred bucks for someone else to do it, right? So yeah, yeah. How about mowing the yard? Have you ever mowed the yard and it was the last and final time you mowed it so perfectly it will never need mowing again? No. The grass always grows back up. And you will mow your yard and mow your yard and mow your yard year after year, week after week. Someday you'll die and then some other poor slob will begin mowing your yard. This, my friends, is the book of Ecclesiastes. Generations, generations, generations come, generations go, yards are cut, crops are grown, wars are fought, stock markets rise and fall, currencies rise and fall, governments rise and fall, repetition, 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 Solomon says it's same old, same old. In verse 5, he talks about nature. He talks about the sun. And he just kind of says, have you ever noticed? Rises and sets. Rises, sets, rises, sets, rises, sets. Been doing that for thousands and thousands of years. It is a cycle that just continues to repeat. He says in verse 6, have you ever noticed the wind? One day the wind is blowing this direction. The other day it's blowing the other direction. Some days it's blowing in circles. Up in Oklahoma, it blows in circles very quickly, right? There's a futility there of it always shifting, always moving in different directions. Verse 7, he says, what about the rivers? These beautiful, large rivers that flow into the seas, that flow into the oceans. Hour after hour, day after day, this incredible volume of water flowing into the sea. And he says, but the sea is never full. It never fills up. Verse 8, Solomon says, everything is wearisome beyond description. He says, I'm tired of just thinking about it. No matter how much we see, we are never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we're not content. So he turns it back to us. He says in the middle of this constant monotony and repetition and futility and and the centuries passing by, nothing seems to change and nobody is ever really satisfied. No one is ever really content. No matter what you see, you haven't seen enough. No trip is so wonderful and so perfect that you come back and you are so satiated by that trip, I will never have to take another trip again. No movie is so amazing, is so wonderful that you walk out of the theater and say, that's it, I'm topped out, I can't handle any more movies. You're going to go see another movie. No song is so good that that song is enough. A friend of mine told me that Van Halen is coming into town. I didn't even know they were still together. They're coming into the Metroplex this week. And I remember when I was in high school and they had this song, Jump. And I thought that song was so cool until I listened to it for like a couple of hundred times. And I couldn't stand it anymore. We're never satisfied. It's never enough, Solomon says. My mom tells a story about 
when she was in college and she was in a sorority at the University of Memphis and, and she remembers this party that they had and they had donuts. They had jelly donuts. She loved jelly donuts until that party was over because they had all of the jelly no donuts you could eat. She made herself sick and to this day she doesn't want to look at another jelly donut. Claudia's birthday was a few weeks back, and Claudia, for her birthday, wanted to go to one of these, and this was a, a birthday present for the whole family, let me say. She wanted to go to one of these Brazilian steakhouses. So we went to this really great churrascaria, this really great Brazilian steakhouse. And I mean, they served everything you could imagine, amazing salad bar, the, the wonderful you know, cuts of beef just coming by, and you could eat as much as you wanted. And we stuffed ourselves, and we loved it, and the next day... We were hungry again. We're never satisfied. It's never enough. And then he turns his attention to something our culture really wrestles with. The next thing. The new thing. In our culture, we compulsively want to get the next gadget, the next technology, the newest book. Um, we worship what's new, and we've got to get it before everybody else gets it. You, you know, there is this word in the English language that describes the five-year-old cell phone. You know what that word is? Paperweight. What was new and fantastic and incredible five years ago is a paperweight today. I mean, we had telephones. Then we had car phones. <laughs> then we had mobile phones. Then we called them cellular phones. Then we had smartphones. And you may think, see, things really are changing, Solomon. You're wrong. Well, you may be able to get your weather on your phone this morning, but guess what? You could call time and temperature 20, 30 years ago and get the weather. You may be able to keep, with your keep up with your friends on Facebook this morning on your phone. 20, 30 years ago, you actually sat on the front porch and talked to your friends. <laughs> Things are changing, but are they, Solomon says? Is all of this change, all of this buzz, all of this excitement, all of this new, is it really just substantially an illusion. Solomon says, this is the way the world's been spinning for millennia. And so in verse 8, he says, it's just wearisome. Everything is wearisome. Verses 9 and 10. Solomon says, history merely repeats itself. It has all been done before. Nothing under the sun is really new. Sometimes people say, here is something new. But actually, it's old. Nothing is ever truly new. Ah, yes, Solomon. But what about this, Solomon? What about this? What about um, fame? What about making a name for yourself? What about being a somebody that people are going to know and people are going to remember? He says in verse 11, we don't remember what happened in the past. And in future generations, no one will remember what we are doing now. 
And so here's a good Father's Day reality check for me. I don't remember the name. I don't know the name of my great-great-grandfather. I don't even know the name of my great-grandfather. And guess what? Here in a couple generations, they're not going to remember my name either. Solomon says that if we look for our meaning, if we look for our fuel under the sun, if we chase under the sun acorns, all that we will find is hebel, futility, meaningless, chasing after the wind. And so from the time of Adam on, all men and all women have lived under this curse of futility. And frustration. You get your car safety inspected, and you have to do it again next year, and again the next year, and again the next year. You get caught up on the family's laundry, and you're like, sweet. In three days, it magically piles up again. You get all of your bills paid. Woo! Glad I was able to do that. Guess what? They're all going to be due again next month. If there's one cheery thing about that, it's like people say, you know, if you think nobody cares about you or cares that you're alive, try not paying your bills for a couple of months. <laughs> well, they care. And so the thing is, Solomon says, we're never done. We're never finished. We're never content. We're never satisfied. And under the sun, he says, that's just the way things are. A guy named Bertrand Russell, a philosopher, much more pessimistic philosopher than Solomon even, if, if that could be true. Uh, Bertrand Russell it was renowned, was, 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 uh, was a renowned atheist, uh, kind of made it his calling in life to convince people about the foolishness of believing in God. He was a man who personally knew what it was like to have a life that felt meaningless. His parents died when he was very young lived as an orphan as a child. Then, searching for meaning, he fell in love, and he married one girl. That didn't work out. Married another, married another, married another. Four marriages in, still looking for meaning. A slew of mistresses, still looking for meaning. At one point, he wrote about this emptiness. He wrote these words. He said, for me, the root of the whole thing is loneliness. I have a kind of physical loneliness which almost anyone can more or less relieve, but which would only be fully relieved by a wife and children. He says, beyond that, I have a very internal and terrible spiritual loneliness. Solomon's summary in chapter 1 sounds a little bit like that quote. In verses 12 to 17, Solomon writes these words. I, the teacher, was king in Israel. I lived in Jerusalem. I devoted myself to search for understanding, to explore by wisdom everything being done under heaven. I soon discovered that God has dealt a tragic existence to the human race. I observed everything going on under the sun, and really, it is all meaninglessness. Like chasing the wind. What is wrong, it can't be made right. What is missing cannot be recovered. And so after giving us this introduction to this dark futility of the world, he introduces us to his project, the project that will take us through 
almost all the rest of the book of Ecclesiastes, and it is going to be quite a project. It really is. In verse 17, he introduces us. He says, So, I set out to learn everything from wisdom to madness and folly. But I learned firsthand that pursuing all this is like chasing the wind. So what he's going to do in his project, in his experiment, is he is going to test every fuel source that people use to get by in life. Every fuel source that people use to pull them forward, to find joy, to find significance. And he is going to go at it 110%. In verse 17, he says, I'm going to use wisdom. I'm going to use a philosopher's intellect to study, to ponder. He says, I am also going to use madness and folly. In other words, I am going to go crazy like Vegas binges and parties. Um, And check this out. This experiment is not something you can replicate at home. Because Solomon had way, 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 way more money and leisure time and power as the king than you or I will ever have. He had, he had more resources than anyone in human history had to devote to this task of testing out these different fuels. I mean, the guy could use gold bars as doorstops at his house. His wealth makes Bill Gates look like an assistant manager at McDonald's. Solomon was loaded. He had everything he needed to party like it was 1999 B.C., and he did. No stone will be left unturned, he tells us. He will use everything at his disposal for this wild romp through philosophy and pleasure and work and career and building projects and social justice causes. He will try everything in his search for meaning under the sun. And we're invited for a ride along with Solomon. Now, maybe Ecclesiastes is just this really weird book that doesn't seem to belong or fit in with the rest of the Bible except like the last five verses. Maybe that's what Ecclesiastes is. Or maybe Ecclesiastes is this book that subtly points to something beyond the the under-the-sun perspective. Maybe all of this focus on what's under the sun is designed to leave us looking for something that's not under the sun. Centuries after his passing, one of his own descendants would be an even greater king, Jesus Christ. And Jesus would have a very different perspective on life. He didn't live life consumed with under-the-sun pursuits. And Jesus, speaking of himself in Matthew chapter 12, verse 42, Jesus makes this statement. He says, and now one greater than Solomon is here. And now one greater than Solomon is here. Greater than King Solomon? In all of his splendor and wealth and power? A 30-something rabbi? 
moving around in backwater parts of the world. But he is greater than Solomon if he has something to offer outside of the pointless, repetitive cycles of futility that we live in under the sun. If Jesus comes to offer a relationship with God in heaven, that's greater. If Jesus invites us into an active role in the kingdom of this God, that's greater. If Jesus offers us hope beyond the grave, that's greater. And if Jesus calls us to be part of a mission that is bigger than us and that will outlive us, that is greater. So this morning, the response is to turn our eyes to Jesus. We get so caught up in chasing our acorns and chasing these meaningless pursuits that don't lead to real contentment, that never truly satisfy. This message of despair points us to someone who can satisfy, and that's Jesus.